If you're like me, you're probably a fan of a good book, television show, movie. But one of the most annoying things when it comes to our forms of media is when you get one of those cliffhangers. You know what I'm talking about when the season ends and all of a sudden they leave you wanting to know more? Where there's that end to that particular movie where you're kind of left trying to figure out what actually happened. When I think of this idea of cliffhangers, a couple things usually come to mind. Let me show you a couple examples for us this morning. The first one that always comes to my mind is Jim and Pam. End of season two in the office. Maybe you remember this scene. Casino night, Jim confesses his love for Pam. She rejects him. They kiss. And then the season ends. What's going to happen? Are they going to get together? We know they're meant to be together. Man, watching that in live television was absolutely a cliffhanger. How about this one? If you're a sci-fi thriller movie, uh, one of my favorites is Inception. And the whole movie is built on this premise of people dreaming inside of dreams, inside of dreams, or, or something like that. And they have these things called totems that were supposed to teach you if you were in reality or not. And Leonardo DiCaprio's character, he spins his totem, and it has this little wobble at the end, leaves you wanting to know, was he still dreaming or not? Arguably one of the biggest cliffhangers I feel like I've ever witnessed in media was The Walking Dead end of season six. You get introduced to who I believe is one of the greatest villains of all time in Negan. They had lined up Rick Grimes and the whole crew and you knew he was going to take someone out with Lucille and you had to wait like an entire year until you figured out who he was going to come after next. You know, recently I read an article that compared The Walking Dead to Gilligan's Island. It was basically this idea to say the premise of the shows are exactly the same. You have a group of people who are kind of deserted. They don't have a whole lot of resources. They need to figure out how to survive. And all that they have is just a finite amount of time on their hands. You see, whether we like it or not, realize it or not, time eventually runs out. The show has to end, the final credits have to roll, the book has to have a conclusion. And so welcome to the final scene in our study through the books of Acts. Can you believe it? 28 weeks, nearly six months, we've been studying the book of Acts. So whether you're in Champaign, Urbana, whether you're catching up with us online, you're watching this later, we have spent the last 28 weeks following around the apostles and the start of the first church. And at this point, though, it seems like time has seemingly run out on the apostles. 30 years, 10,000 miles have been traversed, most of that on foot, from Peter to John to Stephen to the apostle Paul, 28 weeks, 28 chapters, 28 sermons. And let me show you how this ends. Acts chapter 28, verses 30 and 31. This is how the whole thing ends. And let me tell you, I don't even know if cliffhangers can can describe it. It's either a cliffhanger or a cliff jump, but just watch how it ends. The final two verses in the book of Acts, Acts 28, verses 30 and 31, it says this. It says, for two whole years, Paul eventually makes it to Rome, for two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. He proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. That's it. No happily ever after, no no figuring out, did he actually get beheaded? Does the trial go through? Like it just kind of ends, it just kind of stops. Talk about a cliffhanger. For 28 weeks, we've watched the the movement of the Spirit go through the people of God, planting churches, reaching people far from God. Here's the thing. 
Why this ending? Why this cliffhanger? You know, some scholars would tell you that it's, well, it's probably because they actually just ran out of space. The scrolls that they would, would have, uh, Luke would have written on, he would have just probably ran out of space. So that's one thing to think about. Another people try to say, well, you know, that was just kind of it. We're left to kind of figure out the rest for ourselves. But here's what I want to focus on. Here's the thing that I think, is I think it was also somewhat intentional. Because the ending of how the book of Acts ends ought to be enough for you and I. It ought enough to be for the people of God. You see, the whole theme and the whole point of the book of Acts is not what's going to happen next. The whole point of the book of Acts is to say, what are you or what are we going to do with the good news of Jesus? It's not so much to try to figure out, okay, what's the next step? What's going to happen with Paul? Rather, it's a depiction of how the Spirit of God moves through his people. So even though there's somewhat of an abrupt ending, I believe it's an intentional ending as well. But I want to pose the question. So how do we get here? What happens? Because last time we saw Paul, he was about to be shipwrecked. What kind of gets him from that point? He eventually makes his way to Rome, and then there's this cliffhanger. How do we actually get to this point? So we're going to actually jump back to the end of chapter 27, and we're going to see kind of how we get to this cliffhanger moment in the book of Acts. Acts 27, starting in verse 41, it begins by giving us these words. It says this. It says, but the ship struck a sandbar and ran aground. And the bow struck fast and it would not move, and the stern was broken to pieces by the pounding of the surf. The soldiers planned to kill the prisoners to prevent any of them from swimming away and escaping. But the centurion wanted to spare Paul's life and kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and get to land. The rest were to get there on planks or on other pieces of the ship. In this way, everyone reached land safely. Here we are, and we get to chapter 28. It says, once safely on the shore, we found out that the island was called Malta. The islanders showed us unusual kindness. They built us a fire and welcomed us all because it was raining and cold. So here's the thing. Paul's headed to Rome. He's shipwrecked. They, 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 they have to literally abandon ship. They run the ship into ground. Time has seemingly run out for Paul and the other couple dozen people on this ship with him. And it says that the soldiers wanted to kill him and the others because the rule was, if you failed to deliver these uh, prisoners alive, then guess what? You had to pay the price. You had to pay their debt. If they were going to lose their life, now you have to, unless... People died in the transition. So they, it was kind of a common practice. If, if somebody escaped, they would try to hunt them down and just kill them. That way, they wouldn't have to lose their life for the sake of a prisoner. And so they find themselves on the island of Malta. Now, if you spoke ancient Greek, the word Malta means refuge. If you spoke ancient Phoenician, the word means sweet or honey. And so here's the thing. Is there anything really sweet about a refuge that we find ourselves in when time has seemingly run out and we find ourselves on a deserted island. Here's how the story continues, picking back up in verse three. It says this, it says, Paul then gathered a pile of brushwood and as he put it on the fire, a viper, that's a snake in case you didn't know, a viper driven out by the heat fastened itself on his hand. And when the islanders saw the snake hanging from his hand, they said to each other, this man must be a murderer. For though he escaped from the sea, 
The goddess justice has not allowed him to live. But Paul shook off the snake into the fire and suffered no ill effects. The people expected him to swell up or suddenly fall dead. But after waiting a long time, seeing nothing unusual happen to him, they changed their minds and said, he must be a god. Verse 10, though, this is kind of how this part wraps up with the islanders. It says, then they spend time with them. It says, and then they honored us. This is Luke talking about him and Paul, everyone else. They honored us in many ways. And when we were ready to sail, they furnished us with the supplies we needed. You got to be reading the book of Acts and thinking, this is not how it's going to end, right? Paul is supposed to go to Rome. He's supposed to take the good news, the gospel to these Gentiles. God has been telling him, Paul, you will be in Rome to proclaim, to start churches. Nothing's going to stop you. This, this can't be how it ends. A snake bite, really? Now, just to be honest with you for a second, I absolutely hate snakes. Snakes are the worst. Earlier this summer, uh, we were doing some yard work at our house, and, and I remember pulling back like this brush, and there was this tiny little gardener snake. And uh, I'll just be honest, I went to my wife and said, we got a snake, you need to go take care of it. Like, that is how much I just absolutely hate snakes. So this viper attaches to Paul, and they just assume he's dead. And they assume, well, we know our snakes. We know that this thing is a deadly snake. And so they say, well, okay, he must have deserved it. There's a little bit of karma going around here. And then when Paul doesn't die, they jump from saying he's a bad man, he's a murderer, to saying, oh, he must be a god. You see, what I believe we see happening here is the the islanders represent Kind of what is a very real and mostly unspoken form of spirituality. Perhaps it's in your life. Maybe a friend or someone uh, who's close to you kind of believes in spiritual things, but it's not quite the truth. Here's a couple forms of uh, spirituality maybe that we, we see, uh, starting with this one from the Islanders. Number one is this idea of karma. Karma is, is a very real thing. Karma simply says, you get what you deserve. If you're good, you get good things. If you're bad, bad things come your way. If you're a murderer, well, then you're going to die. That's just the way karma works. And then sometimes we take this idea of karma and we put a, a churchy spin on it, a Christian spin on it. And I call this karmic Christianity, which sounds a little better, but in reality, it's not. Which is, well, I don't get what I deserve. Rather, it's God. God just gives me what I deserve. If I follow him and I'm good and I'm obedient, then God has to bless me. He must bless me. And this is pretty prevalent for some of us sometimes. We think it's God's job to give us the things we want as long as we're good little boys and girls and and keep our lives together. But oftentimes it comes with questions, though, also on the opposite side. Well, where's God in my life? Why didn't he do something? Which I think really translates to, well, if he actually loved me, then God would have done something. Or haven't I done enough for God that he would give me the miracle that I desire in my life? See, a lot of us, we fall prey to this idea of karmic Christianity, that the reason that God isn't doing something in our life is because we haven't been good enough ourselves. But that's false. That's not the way our faith works. See, true Christianity tells us this. True Christianity says that Jesus got what I deserve, and I get what I don't. The whole Christian faith is is built on this premise of grace. That Jesus is the Savior who rescued us from the debt of our sin. And both God's justice and our debt of sinfulness were satisfied in the death of Christ. But then in his resurrection, we now live eternally. We get what we don't deserve. We get eternal life. We get the spirit living in us. See, the Christian faith is not one of karmic uh, faith or karmic spirituality. Rather, it's the exact opposite. 
It's a lot of unfairness that happens to be in our own direction. You see, you ever feel like you don't match up in life? Like you ever get to those moments or those seasons where you feel like, man, I'm not, I'm not good enough to meet the standards of others or, 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 or the standards of, of, of friends or coworkers or the standards of family. You ever feel like that before? You know, I have this insecurity of how I don't match up to a lot of men in the world today. And I'll just be honest with you. I'll tell you what it is right here. It's that um, I can't grow a beard. Like, like I could literally not shave for like two weeks and you probably wouldn't be able to notice unless you were like really up close and you could see a couple pricklies on my face. That's about it. So then when I read articles like this, I, I, I kind of get a little jealous. You see, there was this group of guys in uh, Casper, Wyoming, who decided to create the world's longest beard chain. Yes, you heard that right. They took their beards and tied them together. 150 feet of beard. But the thing was, is you could not participate unless you had an eight-inch beard already. And I look at this and say, man, I would never get to be a part of something that awesome. Maybe you would, but for me, I get a little jealous. I get a little feel like, man, I don't really match up to this, this sometimes this view of machismo because, man, I can maybe grow a decent mustache, but that's about it. Here's the thing. There might be small areas in your life where you feel like you just don't match up. Certain things that don't seem to add up together. But then enters God, a divine being, a holy being, a righteous being, a sovereign being. And if I ever feel like I don't add up or feel like I belong, it's not necessarily with the guys who have beards, it's with a holy God, a divine being. I think about God's perfection. I think of who God is, and man, I certainly do not match up to that. So what would he want to do with me? But the thing is, what the book of Acts teaches us over and over and over again is that God uses imperfect people. Whether it was the Apostle Paul who was a murderer, whether it was Peter and John who definitely had some of their mistakes, over and over again, we've told you the book of Acts is not about superstar Christians. Rather, it's about how we don't match up, and that's the point. It's okay that you don't feel like you match up to God, to God's love, to God's rule, to God's love, because Jesus is the one who has given us that grace who has been in our place. Because God is a loving God. He is just God, which means all sin has to be punished, but you and I are never good enough to deserve his goodness. That's why he gives it to each and every person who desires it out of his love. And so one of the things I've needed to remind myself on occasion, probably more often than I'd like to admit, and like to remind you of, it's this idea or this thought. It's more of like a question. Because I think sometimes we try to focus on what God has or hasn't done in our life. So here's the question I want you to maybe think about. Is what if we tried to focus more on what God has done instead of what he hasn't done in our lives? I think we all sometimes have that tendency to say, well, here's what God didn't do for me. Here's where God didn't show up. Here's the miracle he could have done for me, but he didn't. And we get fixated there and we we get really stuck in this idea of like, well, then maybe he doesn't love me or maybe I'm not good enough or maybe this is God's karma coming back my way that if I only was a little bit more obedient, if I only went to church a little bit more, if I only gave a little bit more, whatever it is, then God would have done something in my life. I think we sometimes fall under this trap and we miss the point, we miss the idea that I think sometimes it's more important to, f- uh, to focus on what he has done. 
Here's what he has done in my life. See, while life tends to be unfair, the gospel is just as unfair. And the most unfair thing about the gospel is that, that the worst possible thing happened to the best possible human. And in some ways, we get to benefit from that. We get to benefit eternally. We get to benefit by living life with God. So you want to talk about unfair. I would probably say the most unfair thing that's ever happened in the entirety of human history is that a man named Jesus Christ died on the cross for the sin of the world, the death he did not deserve to die out of love. So that unfairness could be turned around and gifted to anyone who believes that they may have eternal life. But the thing is, is sometimes we still focus on what God hasn't done instead of what he has. Now, many of you know that I didn't grow up in a Christian home, that it wasn't until my father passed away from cancer in 1999 that we kind of started to, to find Jesus as a family. And you know, for probably the first 15 years of my faith, I struggled with this one verse. There's this one verse in the scripture that people will come up to me and they say, Eric, you gotta read this verse. You gotta memorize this verse. If you're gonna get a tattoo, tattoo this verse. Let me tell you, it's the greatest verse. the verse you wanna know everything that you've been through in life. This is the verse you wanna know. And for 15 years, I hated this verse. For 15 years, I wanted nothing to do with this verse. 15 years in, I was already a pastor in ministry. I never wanted to preach sermons about it. I didn't wanna do Bible studies about it. I didn't wanna do devos. For 15 years, I avoided this one verse. And here's this verse. And maybe it's a verse that, that you have read and you're like, I don't know if that happens. Romans 8, 28. This is what it says. And we know that in all things, there's no asterisk there. There's no disclaimer. In all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. There's been so many times in my life, but it's one specific moment where I say, there's one thing I can think of, God, where it seems like you didn't really come through like you should have. Here's something you didn't do that I think you should have. For 15 years, did not agree with this verse. For 15 years, the truth of this verse didn't make sense to me. And then one day it dawned on me, is that I missed what God had already been doing in my life, how God had already been using me. How that pain and that hardship and that brokenness of losing my father as a young boy, God was already using for good, but I was still focused and fixated on what he didn't do in the past. Namely, because I would not be here today if I didn't lose my father in the summer of 1999. Sometimes when we focus on what God has done, we can begin to trust his word about the things that don't quite make sense. But we sometimes flip-flop, do we not? Whether that's your view of yourself, your view of others, probably in your relationship, your view of God. You ever feel like you could have redos? It kind of swings back and forth of how you're feeling or, or man, if I could just, I don't know, go back in time and start over. You know, there's a song that uh, always comes to mind when I think of this idea of redos, and it's from 1989. I don't know if she's considered the queen of pop, but share. 
you know, shares, she's a legend. She was married to Sonny Bobo. And uh, in 1989, she released one of her biggest hits, and it was the song Turn Back Time. The music video was filmed and shot on the USS Missouri. Fun little fact for you this morning. But here's part of the famous lyrics from this song. We can read those together. I'll sing the opening line for it because you, I, I, you, you want me to. Ready? It begins like this. If I could turn back time. That's all you're getting from me, Okay. If I could turn back time, if I could find a way, I'd take back those words that have hurt you. And you'd stay. Then it continues. If I could reach the stars, I'd give them all to you. Then you'd love me, love me, like you used to. If I could turn back time. I think share hits at something that we all feel, that we all yearn for, that if we had the ability to pause time, if we had the ability to turn back time, if we had the ability to, to take time and get some redos, then we would be able to experience love. Because we could go back. We could fix mistakes. We could gain understanding. We could stop ourselves from doing something we regret. And you might feel that way. Maybe it's a relationship with a child. Maybe it's a relationship with a spouse or a former spouse. Maybe a childhood friend, someone from college that you've grown estranged with, or maybe even your relationship with Jesus. God, if I could turn back time, if I could find a way to get a redo, if I could just pause life in certain situations, then maybe I would understand love a little bit more. But the reality is, that's not how life works. That time keeps on ticking, no matter how much you resist it or not. We can't pause it. We can't turn back time. But what we can do is learn to trust God. We can learn to rely on his word. We can learn to lean into him. When we feel like he's not showing up, in those seasons or the moments when it's more about what he hasn't done instead of what he has. When we say, well, God, if I go back in time, I'd do that over again, and maybe you would come through in my life a different way. We don't have that option. But we do have the option. We do have the opportunity to be able to trust as we move forward. See, this whole idea, this whole concept of trust is built on one thing. Whether it's the trust of God or God's word or the trust in a person or the trust in a business, this whole idea of trust is built on one thing and it has to be something that is consistent and unchanging. In order for you to trust someone, don't they have to show up? In order for you to trust a, a, a business, don't they have to honor you throughout years or decades of patron? You see, in order for us to trust God, we have to see his word as unchanging and consistent. God says to Paul, Paul, you're going to go to Rome. You're going to go to Rome. I've got this plan. I've got this mission. And I want to know, how is Paul not faced? How's Paul not faced? Paul, you're not going to die. You're going to Rome. Don't worry. But these lashings, these 39 lashings that you're going to get several times over, don't worry. Most people die from that, but you're not going to die from those because you're going to Rome. You're not going to be taken out by those, those Jewish leaders who are going to try, to try to falsely accuse you. Don't worry, you're not going to rot in prison. 
Hey, don't worry, this whole uh, shipwreck thing, I know it's kind of getting kind of uh, common to you. Don't worry, you're going to Rome. Hey, I know you just found shore, you shipwrecked, you're on the island of Malta, and a viper has bit your hand, but you are going to Rome. How is Paul not phased on saying, God, here's what you haven't done. Here's what you didn't protect me from. And yet, he still moves forward. You see, the miracle in chapter 28, the miracle in our story for this morning is not the protection from hardships. It's not just the fact that Paul survived the bite from a viper. Rather, the, the miracle is that God was continuing to sustain his mission and his word because nothing will ever get in between those two things. Here's this idea, is that when we are reliant on the miracles of God over the word of God, we miss the movement of God. You see, when our faith is dependent on what God has to do in our life, and it's not dependent on the word of God, that which is true, consistent, unchanging, we will miss out on the movement of God in our own lives and the world around us. You see, this theme is constant throughout the book of Acts. That God is saying, I'm going to move. I'm going to do some pretty miraculous things. I'm going to use some pretty ordinary, average Joe dudes. And when I move, it's for one purpose. It's not for their safety. It's not for their comfort. It's not for their blessing. I'm going to do it for one purpose. That's my gospel. It's my good news to reach more and more people. Why? It's because time is limited. Their time was limited. Our time is limited. Thus, We pursue his word, not God's miracles. We pursue his plan, not the things that we think he should do in our lives. And we see how that pain, that confusion, that spot that you're in, that's the real miracle. The real miracle is that God uses imperfect people each and every day, each and every week to bring more and more people into his family. The real miracle is what seems hard or confusing to you, God actually does have a plan to use that. The ways in which you feel like you don't match up, the ways in which you feel like you don't add up, the ways in which you look at who God is and you look at your own life and say, why would God ever use someone like me? And that's when God's like, I get you get it. That's it, that's the whole point. It's because I want to do a work through you, God says, through my spirit, not a strength of yourselves. Don't look for my miracles. Sure, go ahead and pray for those things. Pray for the healings, pray for the guidance, pray for those finances, whatever, pray for those, but focus more on the greater miracle, which is how God is going to use temporal people like us to make eternal differences in the world around us. So in the book of Acts, between all the stories, all the miracles, all the moves of the spirit, the story ends. It just comes to this cliff end. And here's the thing. You might be thinking, well, Eric, I don't know. It'd be really nice to have a miracle like Paul. Just one. Just to really know that God knows me. He knows me by name. He knows what I'm going through. Just just one miracle. I'm not asking for a bunch. I'm not asking to be saved from a snake bite. But just one little small thing would have been nice. Or maybe you're saying the opposite. Well, Eric, there you have it. I know why God doesn't do anything in my life. I know why, why, why God doesn't really use me is because I'm nothing like Paul. And it takes every ounce of courage and energy just to get up and come to church a few times a month. Of course, God's not going to use or work through me because I haven't proven myself to be able to be used by him. 
And what the book of Acts does is it paints this picture. There are no superstar Christians. There are only faithful ones. The book of Acts paints this picture. You don't have to have it all together. In fact, in some ways, the weaker you find yourself, the more reliant you can be on the strength of Jesus. That the more when you you realize, man, you don't really know what you're doing, but you're going to step forward in faith. The more in which something scares you and say, God, I don't have the money to give. I don't have the words to say. I don't have the relationship to invite. And the more we are almost unsure, but we still step forward in faith, that's when God says, you get it. Because it's not about you. It's not about Eric. It's not about a pastor or an elder. It's about me. It's about God, his glory. It's about the son of God, Jesus Christ. See, the whole book of Acts paints this gorgeous, this beautiful picture that acts of faith are real for each and every person who decides to take a step of obedience. Four quick things, four quick things. How acts of faith are still real for you and I today. Number one, acts of faith are real because Jesus is alive. There are no acts of faith if Jesus didn't raise from the grave. If there was no resurrection, there is no faith. We talked about that a few weeks ago. Without the resurrection, without Jesus being alive, there's no point, there's no way for us to even have faith in the first place. So we have acts of faith because Jesus is alive. Number two, we have acts of faith. Acts of faith are real because the spirit lives in you. The spirit lives in me. That anyone who professes faith in Jesus, the spirit now indwells that person. God kind of climbs inside of you and he gives you his guidance. He gives you, uh, he is the advocate. He is the helper along the way, helping convict you, helping guide you. He is your power to live a God-honoring life. Apart from him, we can do nothing. Number three, acts of faith are real because God's plan is set. He looks at the apostles, you need to go to this city. He looks at Paul, you're going to go to Rome. He, he kind of looks all over and he says, this is my plan of where I want you to go. And then he looks at us through Jesus. Matthew chapter 28, go into the world and make disciples of all nations. The plan is set. So it leads me to number four. Acts of faith are real because we have work to do. Here's what I mean by that. We have work to do is because there are still people in our community who don't yet know Jesus. There are seats that need to be filled with people who don't yet know Jesus. There are people that you love, people that you care for. There are people that you work with, people that you live next to, people you spend time with who don't yet, don't yet know Jesus. And so acts of faith are real because we have work to do. I have work to do. You have work to do for the kingdom of God. And that work begins by letting the Spirit transform us, by letting the Spirit change us. And we begin to let that change be experienced with other people. And that change can be big things, it can be small things. It could be my old ways, my old habits are boom, those are, those are dead, those are gone. It could be the words you use, maybe those have changed. Maybe it's the way you view women. Maybe it's the way you approach your property. Maybe it's what you do with your finances. Maybe it's the way you approach work. Maybe it's the hope you have. Maybe it's how you choose to interact with people you don't like or agree with. I don't know, but it starts with being changed in us. We have work to do internally, our own walk with God, but we also have work to do to bringing people into his family. You see, we are not in this thing to use God. Rather, we are in it for God to use us. Let me put it this way, is that the call is not for you to go be like Paul, rather who God has called you to be. You might hear the stories of Paul, 
You might hear the stories of, of, of Peter or John. Maybe you're, whole, you're new to this whole faith. You're like, I don't even know who this Paul guy is that you're talking about. Let's just put it this way. If there was like a Mount Rushmore of Christians, Paul would probably be uh, on a lot of people's list type of deal. But the thing is, is you don't have to be him in order for God to use you because God uses imperfect people like you and I all the time. You don't have to be Paul, but you do have to be who God has called you to be those gifts, those talents, and arguably, most importantly, where you live. See, for the last 28 weeks, we've shown you this map. For the last 28 weeks, we, we've talked about this is the whole region in which the book of Acts covers. And they started in Jerusalem, and they kind of made their way up, and then eventually Rome's up here, and this is where we're all ending. For 28 weeks, we've been focused on this map. This was the movement of God. This is what God was doing. This is how the Spirit was leading and guiding. Look at all the amazing places and the things that God had done. For 28 weeks, this is the map. But here's the thing. The book of Acts closes, and there's a new map for us, and it's this map. This is the map for you and I. This is the map of Champaign-Urbana. This is the map in which that now becomes the movement of God in our area, in your city streets, in your neighborhoods. The movement of God is not just for the book of Acts. The movement of God is not just ancient Israel. The movement of God is still happening today. And this is our map. This is where we have work to do. And so I want to end the book of Acts where the whole thing started. I want to come full circle with this idea of our map, of who you need to reach, of who you need to connect with. I want to end it where when the thoughts we gave in week one, and it was this is that the right step of obedience is the next one. If you're trying to say, God, what's next for me? What's the right step of obedience? It's simply put, it's the next one. To do the next right thing. And it doesn't have to be a grand thing. It doesn't have to be a big thing or a, a massive thing, but it doesn't need to be a faith thing. It needs to be an act of faith because Jesus is real. The next right thing. And here's why. It's because time is going to run out eventually. At some point, you and I will find ourselves in eternity. And we will be walking with God, worshiping God, and there's going to be people who we realize aren't there. There's going to be conversations that we didn't have. And the one thing we're not going to be able to do is to turn back time. We have work to do. We have a map to see the movement of God, not just through this church, but through this whole entire city. So here's what I want to challenge you with. If what is the next right step of obedience for you? What I want you to do is think of one person, just one person to be praying for. Who is somebody in your life who you need to begin praying for in order for them begin finding Jesus as Savior? Who's one person that you can pray for to encourage them? Maybe you're the person you need to be praying for and you need to have a softened heart or spirit towards someone else. Who is one person that you can invite to connect to the church, to connect to a community, to connect in your home? Because the next step is always the right step when it comes to obedience. And that's what the book of Acts is all about. 
So we close this 28 weeks, 28 chapters to say this, is time is going to run out eventually. And we don't wanna regret missing an opportunity to see the movement of God in our lives, in our church, and in our cities. Would you pray with me as we worship this morning? God, we thank you for your goodness, your truth, your word. I ask for each and every one of us this morning as we listen to this message, will you reveal to us maybe just one person? May you reveal to us a step of obedience. May you reveal to us something that perhaps we need to surrender to you. God, may we not miss what you wanna do through us. May we be faithful disciples who take steps of faith because we believe you wanna do something great through us. Thank you, Lord, for the book of Acts. Thank you for 28 chapters of showing us this picture of what you can do with people who are faithful, step after step, week after week, year after year, and how your spirit still moves today. It's your name that we pray, amen.